pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you to speak to us at this time. Lord, as we open your word, wherever we are, would you meet us there? Lord, encourage us, strengthen us. We're needed, challenge us that we might become more like Christ. And it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. I was 15 years old, and I was at the California Hot Springs. It's on a very, very tall rock, probably 15 feet or so above a swimming hole a natural place where the river had run down and it opened up. And there were a number of us swimming, a lot of kids. And we were jumping off this rock into the little pool. Well, most of us were jumping off the rock. I was standing on the rock, wanting to jump off the rock. But looking down over that cliff and just thinking of everything that could possibly go wrong if I jump off this cliff. And two hours later, I was still standing on that cliff as other kids were coming up and just leaping off, having a great old time. And I'm just watching, I'm thinking, ah. On one side, logically, I could see why I was not going to get hurt doing this. Kid after kid after kid was doing it. You could see big rocks coming out, and there, there were no rocks right there. It was deep enough. But over here, there was this fear. This fear that just had a hold of me, and I thought of every problem. I couldn't see into the water. Like, I couldn't see through it. What if... What if one of those rocks was actually closer than what I thought it was? Um, What if I hit the water just wrong and, like, I broke a leg or something? All of these what-ifs, all of these fears, even though I knew it was safe. I kept watching them do it. I I knew I could do this, but I couldn't overcome the fear. And that's the thing with fear. Quite often... It has an irrational component to it. Quite often, you may know that something is okay, but you're still afraid. Last night, as I was praying with my daughter, she said, Daddy, will you pray against tornadoes? Like, honey, there aren't any tornadoes. I know, but I'm still afraid of them. There's certainly, like, honey, you're you're good. Like, there's not even wind outside right now. You're good. But there's certain thing about fear that it it can overcome us. It's this emotion that allows us to see all of the irrational things, all of the illogical things, and just not be able to act. How many times has fear been stronger than your faith? Many times have you been in a point where you want to trust You want to believe, you want to take that next step, but you are afraid. And instead of stepping forward victoriously, 
some of what we talked about last week. Instead of that, you remain trapped in the anxiety. You can't get it out of your head. You just keep thinking about what could go wrong or how is this going to work out, and I don't see the answer. And much like me standing on that rock and looking down at that water, it's too murky. You just can't see far enough forward to really trust, believe, step into it. This morning I want to talk about fear. And I don't want to minimize what we go through. Here's what I don't want to do. If you just trust God, everything will be okay. How's that worked for you? I, no, I want to do more than that. I, I want to talk about some, some both things we can do and some reasons why we can overcome fear. Because it is real. The fear is real. We can't pretend it's not, and we can't just go, well, as long as I trust God, everything's going to be okay. I want to give us a couple other things. Would you open up your Bible to 2 Chronicles? I know it's a book you're probably very familiar with. do a lot of devotions in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. We're in a series called Kingdom First Life. And we started at creation in Genesis, and we've been working our way through the Old Testament narrative. And in particular, we've been paying attention to the way in which God is ruling his people, the way in which his people are image bearers. We've seen God come in the Exodus and show his power to his people and rescue them. But we've also seen their rebellion. We are coming to one of the high points in the Old Testament. Creation and fall, the Abrahamic covenant, God is going to bless the nations. And then the Exodus, God shows himself to be Yahweh. And he rescues his people. And they start toward the land. And now they build the temple. Chapter 5. Thus, all the work that Solomon did for the house of Yahweh was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated and stored the silver and gold and all the vessels and the treasuries of the house of God. And then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of Yahweh out of the city of David, which is in Zion." And he's going to go on to talk about all the people that are gathering. He's pulling all the leaders from the Levites and the priests to the heads of households to the people. He's pulling them all together. And they're going to have this great procession. Because the temple in Jerusalem has been finished. And now they are bringing the ark of God to the temple. And we're going to skip forward to verse 11. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Judithan, their sons and kinsmen arrayed in fine linen, 
with cymbals, harps, lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeteers. This is such a huge preparation. And they've knocked down all the barriers. Doesn't matter what tribe you're from. None of this matters at this point. All the people are together. The priests of God have consecrated themselves. 120 people are going to blow trumpets. This is a huge, massive thing that is about to happen. And it was the duty of the trumpeteers and singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to Yahweh. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments, in praise to Yahweh... And here's the praise, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Why did all of these people gather and do all that they've done? Why have they been following all this time, all the way from the Exodus? Why in this moment does all of Israel gather for this very special time and go out of their way and consecrate themselves and For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This refrain is heard multiple times in the Psalms. You hear it other times in Chronicles. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Why did they do what they did? Because he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. If you want to overcome fear, here's the first thing. Remember that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Now, I want to do two things. I want to describe what that means, and then I want to talk about remember. For he is good. What does good mean? I mean, there's all kinds of ways we use that word, right? I mean, you can describe it anything from dinner last night was good to something that is pure, you can call it good, to something moral, that action was good or it was bad. Now, in one sense, all of that applies to Yahweh. And that Hebrew word, it has a huge range of meanings, just like our English word does. However, quite often when they're talking about it, it means something like, kindness. And it's in this way. I'm going to give you a visual, because I don't know how to describe this. I'm going to give you a visual. When they say, for he is good, this is the kind of thing that is part of it. There's a little boy named Bo. He is autistic. He started middle school. His mom was quite concerned, because she had a terrible middle school experience. And knowing that her son was autistic, she was very worried of what he would be treated like, how kids would see him, the things they would say about him. And he would eat lunch every day by himself. And he would come home, and his mom would say, how was school? He would respond, and she would say, how was lunch? Did you eat with anybody? And he would say, no. And her heart would just break. Every day, this little kid is eating alone, this autistic kid. And he would say to his mom, but that's okay. I don't care. Well, 
three, four months, no, I guess it was the end of school, four or five months ago, the Florida State football team. (laughs) Guess where he's from? (laughs) They came to the middle school. And Travis Rudolph, one of their star wide receivers, as they are going through the lunchroom, saw the kid, knew nothing about him other than this. The kid was sitting alone. So he went up to the kid and he said, can I sit and have lunch with you? And the kid said, I don't care, you can do whatever you want. And so he sat down and he had lunch with this boy. And one of the school administrators took a picture of it and sent it to his mom. And his mom just wept for the kindness of this young man for her boy. That image, that, that, that is God in the Exodus. I hear the cries of my people and I want to come. That, that's the goodness that they're talking about. This God who sees and hears and cares and notices his people, his goodness. And, and it's a goodness that, that says, for his steadfast love endures forever. That is part of the covenant that he makes. This steadfast love. It's not a one-time thing. Has God ever been good to you? That is not the only time he's going to do it. Because his love goes on. It is steadfast. It is solid. It is a rock. That kindness of God doesn't stop with that one event in your life. But it is something you can look forward to for the rest of your life. Two months ago, Travis Rudolph went to the boy's home and got to meet his mom, and there's a picture of him giving her a big hug. And she is just so, so grateful. She's trying to confess to this kid how much what he has done means to her son. And after the hug and after she talks, he walks over to Bo and holds out a fist. And he says, best friends forever. Got it? And gives him a fist bump. And then a week later, that kid spent the day with the Florida State football team. And Travis Rudolph took him around and introduced him to kids. And, because it wasn't a one-time thing for him. He didn't just have lunch with that kid as a photo op. It seems to have meant something to him. That's our God. It's not just once, but it's continual. It's a steadfast love. You want to know how to overcome your fear? Especially in terms of faith, belief, going through that murkiness. Remember, God is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. And that remember part is really, really significant. All right, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but we've been doing this responsive psalm. 
Psalm 78, every single week we're going through this psalm and we're saying parts of it together. And the reason we're doing that is because they are rehearsing the mighty acts of God. They're remembering. We've been reading Acts. What we've been doing in Acts is the same thing. Stephen is giving this speech where he's remembering the mighty acts of God, the love of God. Every single Sunday when we come and do Eucharist, do you know what the Eucharistic prayer is doing? We're not just saying words because we need to extend the length of the service. I do that just fine on my own. <laughs> I finally get an amen and it's for that. The reason that we're saying that is before you come forward to meet with the Lord, we are remembering his love. We're remembering his sacrifice. We're remembering his plan. Because we forget all the time. And our fear pushes that out. When you need to remember, this is what I encourage you to do. When you start doubting, when you start fearing, start rehearsing what God has done. Remember what he's done for his people. Remember what he's done for you. Remember what he's done for your friends and those around you and your family. Remind yourself, rehearse, and remember. Let that drive out some of the fear. Number two. Let's keep going. The house, the house of Yahweh was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister before the because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of God. Could you imagine being so overwhelmed by the coming of God that you can't even stand? You have to fall to your knees because that is the holiness of God. But right here, in this moment, something really, really special is happening. Okay, they go through building the temple, they gather all the people, they make the sacrifices, they praise the name of Yahweh, and then Yahweh comes. He comes and fills that temple in such a powerful way that the people are on their knees before him. But here's a point I want to make. You want to know how to overcome fear? I want you to know. I want you to embrace. God wants to be with you. God wants to be with you. You are not some consolation prize that God has to put up with because you've screwed up so much. And I know we have felt that. Sometimes in the midst of our lack of faith, our sin is also heightened, and we start feeling like, well, I mean, I kind of screwed up. I don't know if God really wants to do anything for me, and I don't have a right to do this. And it's as if God is this distant kind of being. Let me show you God's history. We've covered it. I want to review it for you. 
I'm going to review all the last sermons I've just given. In like a minute, right? (laughs) Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Day 7 was the actual pinnacle. When Yahweh rested and was enthroned over creation. But where was he? He was with his people. From the very beginning, that was his intention, to be with his people. Now they sin and rebel, and they don't fulfill what it means to be an image bearer. And so God retreats, he pushes them out of his presence. However, then he comes back to Noah, then he comes back to Abraham, then he comes back to the other patriarchs, then he comes back to Moses and says, I've heard my people and I'm going to come to them. And then he rescues them from Egypt. And then at the end of Exodus in chapter 40, which we didn't read it, he comes back in the tabernacle to dwell with his people. And then you go through judges, and they keep screwing up over and over and over again, and yet God sends them judges to rescue them and bring them back to himself. It doesn't matter what they do, how far away they run. He keeps wanting to be with them. God wants to be with you. And it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter how long you have doubted. God wants to be with you. He came to his people not, hey, you need to know this. Our God is not like most of the pagan gods where you do certain rituals and it forces the hand of the God. You draw symbols and it makes the God do certain things. You say certain words and the God has to respond. Yahweh did not have to come to the temple. Nothing that they did forced his hand. Yahweh wanted to be with his people. He wants to be with us. A couple months um, into starting a church, uh, we were meeting in a little preschool. Um, I mean, the room was like maybe half this size. We had like 50 chairs in the room, and that's all it could hold, and maybe 40 people in the church total. Just a few months in. And... We're meeting on Saturday nights, and, and there was a guy who is, he's not here today. I'm not going to say his name because I didn't ask his permission to say this, so it's, it's anonymous. Um, and, and he shows up on Saturday night, and he's got his kids with him, uh, but his wife's not with him. And on his way out, as I was saying goodbye, I'm like, dude, you're awesome. You showed up even though your wife's not here, and you brought your kids. What a good dad. Well, next week, he shows up again, and his wife's not there. And he's got his kids. And, and he's coming out, and I'm like, hey, you know, where, where's your wife at? And she had to travel. And I was like, dude, you're, you're amazing. I can't believe you're still here. Like, you know, I'm just, and, and week number three, again, she's gone still. And he comes, and he's got his kids. And I'm like, dude, you're awesome. You're like dad of the year bringing your kids to church, even though, like, your wife's not here. And, and he stops me, and he goes, you do know I like to be here, Right? And, and it hit me, no, like I don't. And like I, I had not realized that up to that point, like I, I guess subconsciously, I literally thought everybody there was just doing me a favor. <laughs> like there's no way they could like this thing. 
because, you know, I, I'm in charge of it. So there's no way they could actually like it. They, they just, like, feel sorry for me or something. And, and I've got to get him here. And, and it struck me, like, he actually wanted to be there. God wants to be with you. God wants to be with you. Embrace that. Number one, he's good, his love endures. Number two, he wants to be with you. And number three, and maybe the most important, jump to chapter six. We're going to skip over Solomon's dedication and his prayer, but we're going to come back to them. Uh, the next three to four weeks, we're going to be in Second Chronicles looking at the temple. But I want you to go to verse 41. This is the end of Solomon's prayer. And he says some things in here, especially in verse 41, that are profound. Verse 41. And now, arise, O Yahweh God, in Hebrew, this is Yahweh Elohim, and it's important. I'll get back to it. And go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Yahweh God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. That same thing earlier. He is good. Let your saints rejoice in that goodness. O Yahweh God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember, we're supposed to remember. Now, God, remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. And we looked last week at the promise that Yahweh made to David, that he would have someone on an eternal throne, his son, and then his lineage going forward. Here's Solomon saying, remember that, God. But here's what I want to point out. Something is happening with God coming to the temple that is more than what we may see on the surface. Arise, O Yahweh God. Right, that is a very specific title. Right, it is rarely used in the Old Testament outside of three places. Right, Ezekiel, which we're also going to touch on in a few weeks, Ezekiel uses it a bunch. In fact, he has about 40% of the uses in the entire Old Testament. Another section is right here. He uses it multiple times throughout this section of Chronicles. And then the parallel in Samuel, which is the same scene, uses that same language. And then creation. This is the creation title for God. If you go back into Genesis 2 and 3, you'll see this title a dozen times. And then after that, it's hardly used. By itself, you'll see Yahweh Elohim of Israel or Yahweh Elohim of hosts, but not just by itself. Now, why do I bring that up? For two reasons. Number one, right here he is quoting Psalm 132. Except for one thing. In Psalm 132 and verse 8, which he quotes, it doesn't say Yahweh Elohim. He has added that in intentionally, which then you have to say, okay, if you're quoting something and all the words are basically the same except for that title, and you, why change that title? Because anybody hearing this would have thought of creation. 
because that's where this title comes from. This prayer is bringing the people back to creation. Why? Okay, keep going. And go to your resting place. Day seven, what takes place? God rests. And when we studied that, we tried to make this point. That resting is not I'm tired. Like I spent some time making the universe and I'm worn out now. Give me a couch so I can take a break. That was not what the rest was. That was a ceasing from work because all the work was done and Yahweh was being enthroned over his creation. He was resting at the helm of what he had made. That is what is taking place in the temple. When God comes to the temple, and let me see if I can show it to you this way. All right, we have this wonderful cross here that a wonderful person in our congregation made for us. It's beautiful. It's huge. You can actually see it. I mean, the cross we used when we first got in here was like you almost lost it in the background. It was so small. Of course, this one now is really heavy, and you have to move it around. And it's now, The other day when they were moved, so this is a side note, um, we have these big boxes back here that carry things. And the boxes were right here because they were loading stuff up. And Reed is up on stage, and he's got the cross in one hand right here, and it's holding it by one of the cross beams there. And on this side of the box, out of my view, is somebody else. They're holding the other side of it. But from my vantage point, he looked like Thor. (laughs) He's got one hand. He's holding this massive cross. He's just standing there. And I'm like, dang, (laughs) i got to start working out more. Okay, this cross, back to my sermon. Uh, This cross is static. It is a beautiful object that you look at. It's a beautiful object that you can reflect on. Hey, I've been standing right here during praise, and and as we're singing, sometimes I'll open my eyes and I'm looking at the cross, especially when we're singing things about Christ's life given for us. And I'm looking at this cross, and it is kind of this conduit almost of worship. There's all kinds of things like that. Hey, I brought in, which we don't use, but orthodoxy uses this. This is an icon that I got from Jerusalem. It hangs above my desk. And sometimes I will just look at it and I'll reflect on Christ. But it's a static object. It, by reflecting on it, kind of, it helps me think about God. It may show me things about God. But it doesn't do anything. That cross doesn't do anything. It's an object. Here's what you need to get about God coming to his temple. He was not coming to be an object just to be worshiped. He was coming to be their king. The reason that creation language is brought back is because Yahweh came to reign over their lives from his temple. He was being re-enthroned over his people. And as you go through the book of Chronicles, You see this language. In fact, in Chronicles chapter 2, in Hebrew, Solomon says, I'm going to build Yahweh a house. I'm going to build a house for Yahweh, 
and his kingdom. At one point, David talks about his son Solomon, who's going to reign on the throne of Yahweh over Israel. Later on, after Solomon's death, Abijah, one of the kings, who's in the correct line, he's going to war with another king who is not standing fast with the covenant that God made with David. And Yabijah says this to him. You need to, I don't care how many men you have, you cannot win this battle because you cannot stand against the kingdom of Yahweh. Because when Yahweh came to his temple, he came to be enthroned. Not just adored, not just looked at, not just as a conduit to worship, but to reign over his people. Now, what is my point? How does that help me with fear? Excuse me. God is in your life, but he's not there as a static thing. God's not there. I, I think sometimes we treat those moments of fear and as if we have some rules that we're supposed to follow on a piece of paper, and like we gotta do these things. And, and, and it's, it's very static, and, and that's really hard. Do you understand that God is your king, and he wants to reign in your life presently? He wants you to follow, he's guiding you. Hey, let's go back to my rock for a moment which is, has nothing to do with God. He did not lead me up onto that rock, but just pretend for a moment that he did. I'm standing there, and I'm looking down at the water, and I'm petrified of this water, and I'm thinking there's so many things that could go wrong. Instead of thinking, but God has led me to this point, and I can trust him through this. He's actively working in my life. He's not just waiting for things to unfold. He's not just hoping things are gonna work out. But as king, when he came to the temple, it was to reign over the people. It was to guide them, to lead them. It was so they could follow him. Not just so they could have this object to go, okay, well, you're really big and awesome, and now i got to go take care of things over here. If you want to overcome your fear, the third thing I encourage you is to recognize, to accept, to embrace to submit to Yahweh as your king. Follow him. Realize that he's actually working in your circumstance. Not just that he's waiting for it to unfold, but he's working in it. And now, if that is true, step back with me. If he's working in your circumstance, and this is true, he wants to be with you because of his kindness, his goodness, and his steadfast love. If all of those things are true, then let me ask you, what's he doing in your life? It can only be good. Not saying not hard. I'm not saying necessarily what you want. But if God is good and his steadfast love endures, and if God wants to be with you and God is working in your life as your king, 
then he can only be leading you where his nature will go. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who believe this. God is good for everybody else. Maybe you have felt that. God is good for you. God is steadfast in his love for you. Not just for the person next to you, for you. Will you accept that love? I did eventually jump. It really wasn't too bad. But the reason I jumped is because when you're gone for two hours from the cabin, eventually your parents come looking for you and wonder what you're doing. I was going to do this one way or another, even if I had to like sleep on that rock that night and then fall off in the sleep. I was going to jump off that rock. The way I finally got off the rock, and I'm a little bit embarrassed, honestly, because I was 15 years old, and everybody else was doing this but me, even my little brother who was 12. <laughs> my dad got in the water, and he walked around the area where I was going to jump in. And he said, I know you can't see what's below here, but look, I'm walking around in it. You can do this. I believe in you. And I stepped off the rock. Went right in. It was awesome. I probably did it a hundred times after that. Just getting over that first thing. But I needed my dad. He is here for you. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that you've made us your children. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that your love goes on and on and on. Thank you that you lead us. Lord, please help us to recognize that. To recognize you lead us as our king and you love us as our father and to put those things together that we might step out in faith in ways that we have never done before. Because you are worthy of that. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.